Welcome to the Launchpad Podcast. Guys, today we have a very special guest on the show, Christopher Gilman. He's an armorer and a prop maker and just has done tons of stuff in the film industry. He's worked on films like Bram Stoker's Dracula, Mars Attacks. He did The Melting Bicycle for Nightmare on Elm Street. And you know I'm a huge redhead, so hearing about this was really awesome. He is the president and co-founder of Global Effects, Inc. They do props and costumes and, and special effects stuff. He has a lot of fascinating stories. Matt got to talk to him at the Los Angeles Comic-Con this year. It's been in our vault. I just haven't had time to release it. So we're dropping the interview with Chris Gilman today. But before we do that, guys... Thank you so much for listening to the Launchpad Podcast, giving us a lot of support, giving us lots of listens, those likes, those subscribes, those comments. We love hearing from you guys. Hit us up on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Launchpad Pod. Thanks for showing our guests some love. We've had a lot of special guests lately, dropping a bunch of interviews. It really means a lot to get support for our guests that come on our show. So thanks a lot. We have a lot of great stuff coming up, so stay tuned. But until then, it's Matt at the Los Angeles Comic-Con, talking to Chris Gilman. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am still here at the Los Angeles Comic-Con. I am at the Legion M booth with none other than Chris Gilman. Chris Gilman has done a ton of, I mean, how should I even introduce you? You've done props. You've well, you got done, the name right. That's well, good. That's so a good start. Our, our, step one, good. Um, but I don't know what to call you because you've done so many different things. You've done costumes. You've done specialty wardrobe. You've done props. Uh, makeup effects, stunts. You, yeah, uh, you yeah. talk about it then. Uh, well, yeah, it's a kind of a tough thing, and that's probably why I'm a little more obscure than some of the other mainstream guys. Because I, I, you know, shifted from one thing to another, and you know, got out, got out of makeup effects very, very early in my career in LA, and mm -hmm. got into doing props. And of course, props—you're working for another department under someone else, and and nobody ever remembers the prop maker. <laughs> I guess <laughs> that's know. true. Is that something that you like, or which was different? Well, g growing up, uh, <clears throat> I grew up in Connecticut, and my parents. Uh, my mother was a librarian, my father was in the aerospace business, and their hobby was auto racing. Through, so through auto racing, I knew a lot of who are now very, very famous race drivers, but one of the people I hung out with quite a bit was Paul Newman and Jim Brolin. <laughs> and, you know, Paul Newman couldn't, you couldn't go to the bathroom without checking behind the door. Sure. You know, it was terrible. So when somebody said, oh, you move into Hollywood, become rich and famous, I, well, I said, well, the hell with being famous. <laughs> I, I, I'd like to be able to eat dinner in Don't peace. Do the worry. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Uh, How amazing. Where in Connecticut were you from? A small town called Hebron. Well, I'm from, well, partially from Connecticut. My parents live in New oh, well, Milford. part of right? you are from Connecticut? New, <laughs> the bottom half. New Milford. We, 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 I'm yeah. actually a New Yorker. We grew up in Long Island, but then we moved to Connecticut uh, right when I started high school. New Milford, which is like a half hour or so outside of Danbury. But I haven't even heard of, what did you say? Hebron? Hebron. Hebron. It's, um, yeah, it's a small town uh, outside of Hartford. In fact, our high school had to be made up of three different towns. It was called Ram High School, which stood for Regional, Hebron, Andover, Marlboro. Wow. Yeah. Andover, see, I know yeah, of. Andover, Marlboro, yeah. I know of. Huh. Inter okay. Yeah. So I moved I moved to Tucson halfway through my junior year of high school. Okay. And one of my first uh, jobs was doing stunts at Old Tucson, which is a movie location on the outskirts of Tucson. And, of course, you know, you're not going to be discovered there. Because, sure. you know, <laughs> so I knew that immediately and moved to L.A. not long after I, I uh, got out of high school. And started off wanting to do stunts, but uh, 
I was at the, used to be a place called the Pony Express Gun Shop, and okay. they dealt with antiques. Well, one of my hobbies is medieval arms and armor and doing replicas of armor and metalworking, having grown up around a metal shop. And the guys there go, oh, what, you know, you should be doing, you should work for the hand prop room. I, the, the what? <laughs> What's, you know, to me, props were something that you went to the thrift store and bought for your play. Mm-hmm. You know? Right, sure. <laughs> and when I went over to the hand prop room, there's this enormous... I mean, three huge warehouses all joined together, and everything from luggage to ray guns to firearms to, I mean, you name it, it's there. And, like, somebody goes, luggage? Well, every time you see a scene in an airport or a Greyhound station, right. everybody's got <laughs> luggage. Well, where does that come from? And if you're doing a period film, you got to find that period luggage. So sure. I even made period luggage at one point. Wow. But those aren't the sort of things that, you know, most people do big articles about mm-hmm. because they're not the glamorous side of it sure uh but uh, over the years i've been I've done makeup effects uh, i did makeup effects on the mask greg canham right did all the makeup effects well there was a transformation effect where jim carrey puts the mask on and it grabs his head mm-hmm. that was supposed to be a makeup effect or it was supposed to be a digital effect but mm-hmm. nobody had made the decision of which it was well production thought it was going to be a makeup <laughs> effect because ILM told them that in order to do that a shot they would have to digitize the entire bathroom because that's where the mirror was right. and they had already digitized the living room for a couple other scenes but the expense of digitizing the bathroom was going to be very expensive so nobody told Greg Canham though so about a week and a half before it's supposed to film it all of a sudden becomes a big problem because nobody's done anything on it. Sure. So Greg says, look, I'm on another show. Call Chris Gilman. He's done all the prop masks for the show. He did makeup effects. He's perfectly capable of doing it, which was really nice of Greg to do. And we did this transformation ahead. It was the very last shot film at about 4 in the morning. Really? And what had happened is they realized that in all of the shots, you never saw the space between the bathroom and the kitchen. In his apartment. <laughs> okay. And there is a bureau there. Right. And that people often would have a mirror above the bureau. So they decided <laughs> I know exactly at the last what you're minute, talking they about. went, hey, let's just do it in the bureau. We're already in the living room, and then we can digitally augment everything we do. Mm-hmm. So they shot our stuff and then digitally augmented over it. <laughs> so, you know, even even when you get to do a, a big thing that, you you know, it it gets lost in the shop. Sure. Yeah. Now, uh, you mentioned Greg Cannon. Greg Cannon did the practical makeup effects, or at least a lot of them in the mask but you yep. also worked with him or i don't know if you worked with him but you also worked on another film that he did makeup for which was dracula dracula that that was a lot of fun the prop master i'd worked with on another show and the costume supervisor uh i think it was richard schisler mm-hmm. i'd worked with on another show and i my hobby of armor and th- they knew that they needed somebody to do the armor for the film and now Aiko's a you know she was a fine artist sure you know so this was the first time she'd done costumes. So there were a lot of, I don't want to say shortcomings, but there were a lot of, of, of parts of the story, you know, or parts of the process that were missing because she wasn't used to doing that. Mm-hmm. So when they originally came to us for the armor, uh, they had very little money for it, actually. And I think our budget came in at like five times what they had. Sure. And they were like, oh, And oh, is no, this specifically know. just the Dracula armor, or is this multiple suits in of armor? In this case, it was just the one Dracula armor for, the muscle for Gary Oldman. Suit. Yeah. yeah. And we said, look, there's just no way. There's no way we can do it for that. So uh, I gave the name of, like, three other places in town that did armor and did stuff like that. I said, yeah, go to the, these guys. Maybe they'll do it. Mm-hmm. Well, they really wanted us to do it. And then they came back and said, look, we found the money. And so oh, we wow. did it. But 
the original design of the armor was only ever rendered in a single drawing from the front. Oh, and her, okay. And Aiko's idea was a wolf crossed with a gas mask. Okay. Right. Well, there you is, can see that. There is a real animal out there that's a wolf crossed with a gas mask. Is that true? Yeah, it's called an aardvark. <laughs> so, of course, when we sculpted this, the helmet looked like an aardvark. It mm -hmm. was really bad. So, because we did it as a maquette first. Sure. So, Patrick Totopoulos, uh, production designer, uh, director, was, it was one of the first jobs working for me. And uh, he did some sketches. I did some sketches. And they put a hold on the whole armor until we decided on the helmet. Mm -hmm. Well, time's ticking by, and we're losing time. So then, finally, we start moving ahead on the sculpture. Aiko approves one of Patrick's designs for the helmet, and then we start building that. Well, we're running behind, but you know, we'll make up some time. Then we get a call mid-November, uh, beginning of November, saying, uh, hey, would Gary would like to get this armor a couple weeks ahead of time so we can rehearse in it. And I said, well, we're, you know, we're going to struggle to get to the 15th, but we'll make it. But, you know, the 15th, they, she goes, the 15th, the 15th of what? Now, this was Aiko's <laughs> assistant, the female costume supervisor versus the guy we'd been working, Richard, the male costume supervisor. Okay. And, and I mean that as in men's clothes versus women's clothes. Okay. And um, I said, well, the 15th of December. And she goes, oh, no, no, this, this works before Thanksgiving. So we thought we had six what? weeks left. Turns out we had three weeks left. Oh, my God. And I called Richard, and I said, look, there is no way, because our original plan was to sculpt the suit in layers, adding each layer as we sculpted the previous, pulling rough molds off, and then uh, matching or, uh, finishing every single part with all of these little lines all over it to make it perfect, you know, body work it, because I can give a whole bunch of pieces to, like, six different guys and do this. Well, now with three weeks, I don't have time to right. do that and make new molds and go through making sure. hard rubber parts and... So we ended up having to use the fiberglass masters. Uh, and, of course, they wow. weren't made to be super tough. They were made sure. to have a thick surface coat so they could be sanded. So, of course, they broke. And the, and the whole set was sprayed with uh. gunite, like uh, you put on the inside of a pool. So sure. the entire set was like 36 grit. Oh, wow. what a nightmare. So uh, uh, um, I heard Francis Ford Coppola was... You know, likely my old boss actually at the hand prop room, he worked on Apocalypse Now mm -hmm. and told me some stories. So I'm just really worried that Coppola is going to go ballistic. But Francis is really nice. He gets up and he goes, look, I understand what you guys are up against. Um, is there anything we can do? I said, yeah, yeah, we can do this, this, and this. He goes, fine, go ahead and do it. So we did it. We made it through. Um, another quick funny story is uh, Gary was talking to this old guy in one of the costumes, and I wasn't really paying attention, of course, because I'm freaked out over the fact that things are breaking and we got to fix them. And sure. Right. And he goes to this old guy. He goes, hey, well, if you want to know about armor, Chris here, he's a guy that knows all about armor. You talk to him. And I look up, and the guy goes, hi, hi how you doing, Chris? I'm Tony, Tony Hopkins. I go, hi, Tony, how are you? And I went back <laughs> to what I'm working on, and, and my brain caught up and went, Tony, Tony Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> Pretty funny. That, and, and, you know, that, that armor is so iconic, even though it has not a lot of screen time, and it's not really... I mean, it happens at a very important part in the movie, but the armor itself is not an important part, aside from the visual significance. It's not, it's not crucial to anything that happens, per se, but I think that is, like, probably, aside from maybe the hair, you know, Gary Oldman's, you know, Dracula hair, I think that is the number one image from that movie that everybody remembers, whether you saw it a hundred times or one time, it's that armor. And actually, we're standing by some of the armor right now. It's, it's him holding up a spear with a guy <laughs> impaled on it. 
It's right behind us. It's, it's amazing. I'm glad my back is facing to it, because if we were spinning, I wouldn't be looking at you. I'd be looking at that. Uh, is this a replica? Yeah. The, we only actually made one suit for the show, oh, wow. and we made some spare parts, because mm-hmm. uh, there was no time to make. Originally, like I said, we wanted to make um, rubber parts, so sure. like, we knew that they could just get banged around and nothing would happen to them. Mm-hmm. But partway through, we, we tried to swap out some of Gary's armor with some rubber pieces, and he, he was like nuts. He's like, no, 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 no. Don't change it. I want it just as it is. I know what it does, and I don't want to change it. Like, oh, okay. And those pieces were fiberglass, the ones oh, that... Yeah. The, oh, yeah. And uh, it was unfortunate because, you know, it would break. And they wouldn't even pay to have us make a duplicate. Sure. Because our original <laughs> plan was we'd make a second one. See, fiberglass is one of those materials that the glass is what makes it strong, right. not the resin. Right. And most people in Hollywood, you know, lay up a huge amount of resin and think the glass is there to strengthen the resin. And right. it's the other way around. So these pieces were deliberately laid up with a lot of resin because we knew we were going to do a lot of sanding, sanding on them on it, yeah. because the sculpture, you know, every surface wasn't perfect. So they were brittle. So what we wanted to do was make more hero parts out of tougher materials, and they didn't want to spend any money, you know. And I think it's the reason you said is it it was an insignificant portion of the film relatively, but if they'd known the visual impact it had, I think they probably would have spent more money on it. Well, I mean, I've seen that movie. A thousand times. I literally watched it last week. It holds up. It looks great. You guys did a great job. Whatever little fixes you did last minute, whatever whatever Coppola let you do, you, you did a good job. Do you have any, like, we call them oh shit moments where you're on set and you're like, oh shit. Is there anything specifically related, related to that armor that you remember, like, I had to pull this out of nothing? Everything on the armor. <laughs> no, no, it was really, um, again, I, I, can't, I can't overstate the fact that um, from an engineering standpoint, I would have, uh, the plan was to make it completely different. But mm-hmm. we were forced into a corner. They needed to get Gary um, done early because of some conflict with another show or something. So there was no moving the scenes around. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the big thing was Aiko didn't want to have any visible straps, closures, connective points. And that's because she didn't work on film. Right. And she was even freaked out about the color wasn't identical to the sample. And the sample she gave us was a plastic rice bowl with a red interior. And I pointed out to her, look, the reason ours looks different is it's a different material and we're under fluorescent lights. Lights, yeah. And we walked outside and the color changed. Sure. And she went, oh. And I realized right then, she has no idea what the film stock is going to change the color, what lights they use on set are going to change the color. Well, we spent two days putting a two-tone lacquer paint job on the armor. We got it to set. The on-set painter used tempera floor, uh, tempera paints and floor <laughs> wax and aged the whole thing. Oh. So from that point on, we touched up with um, Krylon red and Banner red sure. out of a spray can. <laughs> because at that point, the paint right. job was shot, you know, yeah. with nothing that was showing of it. So the, the oh, you know, chit moment was when the arms and legs kept popping open because she wanted hidden closures and they weren't, they just weren't strong enough sure. to do the job. So we put in Chicago screws. It was a male, female nut screw combination. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things that Coppola said, yeah, absolutely, go do it. Because he, he knew, you're never going to see it on camera. Sure, right. But she was worried you would. And so those are the kind of the things that all the departments had to deal with was just seeing experience of knowing what's going to appear on camera. Um, you know, when I first started in the business, um, I actually worked on uh, Terminator. I was, we were going to get to that, but keep going. I love well, that. It, it was a low-budget film, and there was no... We were up to our eyeballs. This was at the hand prop room, and we were up to our eyeballs on a bunch of other work. And the owner of the company was friends with a prop master and wanted to do him a big favor because it was a low-budget film and wanted to be able to make all this great stuff for him for little cost. 
Well, we had everybody in the shop working on something. Uh, Jeanette up in the leather shop, she was sculpting some of the pieces. Well, she's a sculptor. <laughs> and, you know, frankly, they looked awful. But, you know, it was nothing against her. She wasn't a sculptor. Sure, she was a right. She, you know, the stuff she made in leather would blow your mind. Right. right. But we didn't have enough hands. Well, the thing was, well, paint it black. You know, the camera won't see it. Well, what, what's, we, what things from the film are you talking about right um, now? Well, we did a bunch of the future weapons. Okay. Uh, the, the grenade that they throw that, that mm-hmm. blows off the, blows up one of the transports or yeah. one of the robot vehicles and the future machine, um, uh, weapons, mm-hmm. bunch of rubber props, you know, again, it's that non-glamorous side where, sure. you know, the actors love, love us because they're not going to get cracked in the head with a real gun, right. but hopefully you never see it, you know, <laughs> the old idea of paint it black, the camera will never see it. Right. Well, we we go to set, and I'm I'm young. I've only done a few films, you know, so getting to go to a movie set was great. Sure. <laughs> and Jim Cameron, of course, at that point, he was an art director. He had done Piranha, I think. Right. And, you know, Piranha 2. Piranha 2. Yeah. And, and nothing else, right? <laughs> yeah. So he ripped my boss a new one. I mean, up one side, down the other. Wow. Because these props, frankly, looked like crap. Mm-hmm. They were bad. And Jim Cameron's got a critical eye. Sure. And, you know, there's not much we could say. Because he's right. He doesn't care we didn't have time. He doesn't care there was no right, money. Right. He, you know, he wants what he wants. And that's when I realized you don't make it for what the camera sees. You make it for what the, the director, director sees. sees. So yeah. when the camera starts signing the checks, you can make it for the camera. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually great. And anyone who's been in the trenches, we know that that's, you, you got to do it that way. And I remember in film school being the same thing. Like, oh, you're never going to see that doesn't matter if the camera's never going to see that. Someone on set, specifically director, producers, Absolutely. they're going to walk back there, and you got to make the whole thing. you got to make it 360. Or, or the actor. Or the actor holds it and goes, well, sure. wait a minute. Really? You're going to give me this? No, yeah. believe me, you'll look good. R- r- really? <laughs> you know? Because, I, look, I, I'm Screen Actor Guild, and I've been on camera, and, you know, luckily most of the time I'm in a suit, so I don't really care mm-hmm. it, how I look. Sure. As long as they're happy with what I look, because it's not my face. Right. But if it's your face and you're made to look like an idiot on camera, then that's every actor's nightmare. Because <laughs> right, because then you feel stupid you feel and it's not even your fault. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, you know, even giving them a bad prop, like really, no, sure. I can't carry this. Right. Yeah. And I, that, that is very important. And I think a lot of times people like us who work on the crew, we think of actors in a, a certain loving, Hateful hating way. way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think they know that. But you, when you put yourself... You know, in their shoes, be it figuratively or literally, you start to be like, well, actually, yeah, I'd feel like an asshole, too, if I had something that looked stupid. And it would take away from your performance, theoretically. Yeah. So you're right. You do have to kind of find that fine line of, like, time, money, and cutting your fingers off with fiberglass to make sure that they don't, you know? Well, often when I'm, you know, when I, somebody finds out I'm in the film industry and they say, oh, I'm an actor, my usual question is, oh, what restaurant? Yeah, <laughs> stick it right in there and twist it. Yeah. Well, no, I, I, I'm a SAG, you know, I'm a SAG actor, but I do suit work, and I, and I'm sort of yeah. a hobby thing where, like, I was in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. As I was protocop. just about to ask you that. A, you were protocop. I was protocop. That is my absolute hands down favorite Shane Black anything that he's ever done. I love that film. Really uh, it's, it's a, it, it is a Christmas staple in my house for sure. I didn't realize you were well, protocop. How cool is I that? I got an Easter egg for you on that. Go ahead. What was the bat that she was carrying? Oh, 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 oh. I, I, you, oh. Wonder Girl. That's right. That's right. And what right. was that a parody of? You remember? Remember the movie The Natural with Robert Redford? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I never made that connection. Yeah. Well, the, the bat for, for that was Wonder Boy. Oh. Well, the, the Easter egg, and nobody on crew knew this, 
I made Wonder Boy. Did you really? So I got attacked with a parody of my own prop, and nobody knew that. And I didn't find this out until I watched the film, because I never oh. saw the hero prop. So it wasn't even like a personal nod to you? It was no, just the no, way No, nobody it, knew. Small nobody world. Knew. How yeah. funny is that? Is that, that? Yeah. that I, I love that whole sequence, the whole protocop sequence. Anyway, anyway, I want to talk in general suit work, because I've actually done a bunch of suit work, too. And I, I, lo I love it. I actually love it. I wish I could do more of it. What other stuff aside from Protocop have you done? Uh, let's see. I did an episode of Star Trek uh, as a knight in armor. Mm -hmm. uh, again, my hobby of armor, I, you know, uh, I was a knight in armor in um, Indian in the Cupboard. Mm -hmm. So that 13 second wow. scene. That's not way even back that. Then. I think it was like four seconds. Yeah. Done a lot of, uh, I did, we had a polar bear suit that we built. My, one of my favorite, you can find this on YouTube, and it makes me laugh every time I see it. I was a giant rat. And we built a giant rat suit for a political video mm -hmm. to help get the new governor of Georgia elected. Okay. And I, it was really weird to get that much of a budget for a political thing. But, all right, we built this giant rat suit. And then they did it. We used it on Yes, Dear, the TV show. Okay. On a TV show, they're known as a stage manager versus a, uh, the first AD. Right. So the stage manager says, okay, we're done. And everybody, oh, big round of applause for Chris in the rat suit. You know, thanks, you know. So I go into the other room to change. Now, of course, you've, as you know from doing suit work, you have soaked yourself into Ridiculously. this thing. Ridiculously. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm getting out of the suit part way, and the stage manager comes and goes, oh, oh, you're already getting out of it. And I said, oh, look, I'm, I'm sorry. I, th I thought I was wrapped. He goes, you were, but uh, the director was hoping you would dance through the final credits. Well, <laughs> I'm one of these weird guys that dancing, if I could dance like Fred Astaire, Sure. Or Nicholas Brothers or something like that. I'd probably be into it. But I dancing is something I've just never been into ever. My wife hates me for that fact. She loves me for everything else, but that's the one that's thing. That's the thing. <laughs> but I thought, uh, when am I ever going to get a chance to dance in a giant rat suit? Now, I didn't hear any of the music. I didn't know what they were going to play. Sure. So it was all improv. It was one take. It's really quite funny. So that was We'll have fun. to check that out. That that's... But on the suit side of things, my best friend was a guy who played the Predator, Kevin Peter Hall. Oh, excellent. And I did a lot of work with Kevin. I had worked on Harry and the Hendersons on the prop side, mm -hmm. and I'd worked on Predator on the prop side before it was Predator, when it was called Hunter, Hunter yeah. with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Well, they shut down production, and in the time that they shut down production and started the suit at Stan Winston's, I started my own company. Oh, okay. And so I worked on it at the hand prop room doing all the rubber weapons and a bunch of props, and then I worked on it as Diligent Dwarves Effects Lab, my company, to do, like, the blood, to show them how they could film the blood by mm -hmm. heating it up to make it brighter. Sure. Uh, I made the lasers to go on the helmet because at that time lasers weren't that small, and I configured them in such a way they were small enough. Did some other advising and some other props, and then did body training with Kevin. Well, Kevin was terrified of being in the creature suit down in Mexico. Sure, oh, for sure, heat. yeah. He just come off of Harry and the Hendersons, and because of Rick Baker, he was treated like a movie star. Mm -hmm. I mean, I shouldn't say because of Rick Baker, but I, I bet Rick had a say in it. Yeah. I mean, Kevin had his own driver. He had two suites. He, I mean, he was treated like a star because he was the star of the film. Mm -hmm. Many times, creature suit guys, the creature is the star, sure. not the guy in the suit. Right. And Kevin knew this because Kevin had done some other creature suit work. If we have time, I'll tell you how he met Rick Baker. Okay. <laughs> so Kevin comes to me, and, and he goes, look, I'm really scared about being in this suit, and I don't know. These are a bunch of young guys at stands, and... You know, they don't have a lot of money, and it's really rushed, and, and I'm going to be in Mexico. And he really was genuinely afraid. Yeah. And I said, well, you should wear a cool suit. And he goes, a what? I said, a cool suit. He goes, well, what are those? I said, well, Stan's guys should know about it. Well, I, I grew up on aerospace. It was my dad's business. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the biggest 
problems I had when I first got to L.A. How, L.A. is a land of bullshit. People make shit up all the time. <laughs> totally. And the stuff that I was saying, well, you could just do this, you just do this, it's because I grew up on aerospace. I mm -hmm. knew how to weld when I was 12. I knew how to run a milling machine and a lathe and all these things when I was very young. Anyway, so Kevin's guy had no clue. So I built one for Predator, mm -hmm. and they used it. And then we used it in multiple other things, and eventually that led to me winning, winning an Academy Award, Technical Achievement Award, for the development of the cool suit. That's incredible. That's, I mean, I've been in a couple different creatures, a couple different, like, killer-type things, and I remember, I don't remember what creature it was, but it was one that had latex gloves and it had a, a, a mesh under, and there was no breathability in it. And when you took the glove off, you'd upend it, and water would run out yep. like a faucet, and it was disgusting. And the only thing grosser than that is when, like, I would be the guy attached to the actor in the suit, the guy who gets the guy in and out, and then you're, it's, it's like babysitting a giant child, right? Because you literally can't walk by yourself. You can't walk around corners. You got to like, you know, it's, a, it's only like a cop. You got to grab the top of their giant monster head and kind of pull them under a doorway. <laughs> I've, I've been in the bathroom yeah. before with a onesie, you know, I have to unbutton another guy's onesie. And it's like, that's part of the job that no one ever talks about, you know? And it's weird when it's you and you need, you need help getting out of your clothes. But when yeah. you're in the bathroom with another guy helping him take his pants well, off. I, I'm not really good with asking for help or, or feeling like I need help. It, sure. Uh, you know, it's just, just part of my personality. And it's gotten me into trouble just from, you know, just, again, people, people generally want to be helpful or they want to feel involved in a mm -hmm. way. And for me, I'm usually, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. Sure. Well, doing creature suit work, you're right. You, you absolutely have to have that help. I did a a thing for Pressman Toys where I played this uh, muscled uh, demon creature. And the only vision I had was through the gaps in, like, the mouth and the eye area right. where I could see where lights were. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I could say, okay, there, I know there's light coming from over there, so that light fixture is over there. Right. And as I would turn, I have fairly decent spatial awareness. And so I kept trying to hit my mark. And, I, and they kept saying, no, no, more to the right. No, no, further out. No, no, more to the left. And I'm thinking, what in the world is <laughs> where Finally, I? my handler comes over, Paul, and he goes, um, they're moving your mark. <laughs> I go, okay, hey, guys, guys <laughs> tell me when you move the mark, because now I'm overcompensating because I think my right. judgment is off. Right. Well, at another point, the producer or the, the, the first AD said to the director, oh, no, no, just keep shooting whatever you need, because, you know, we're paying the guy to be in the suit, and he can be in the suit as long as you need him. Uh, I'm still a person. And Paul heard this, and Paul leaned down and said, um, excuse me, but when, when Chris is out of the suit, he's my boss. When he's in the suit, I'm his boss. Right. And if I say to you guys, he's coming out of the suit, he's coming out of mm -hmm. the suit. <laughs> <laughs> That's another thing. People don't. They just don't because know. I think, like you said, you, 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 you know, when you go into a creature suit, you become that creature, that character. Yeah. And I think that it's very easy, especially if you're an AD or director or even some PA, like you think, oh, that's a thing that needs to be. Exactly. You know, and I think a lot of people treat even just regular human crew members that way. Well, you, you know, know the what nickname. I mean? What's that? The nickname for a guy in a suit. Monster Man? No, Meat Puppet. Oh. <laughs> Essentially, yeah, that's what meat, we are, right? It's a Meat Puppet. The other one I like is uh, an extra. The nickname is Skin Prop. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> See, then I'm like, but then I go, oh, some of them are skin props. I was like, no, I shouldn't think like that. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of meat, you did something on uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Oh, yeah. yeah. Talk a little bit about that. So Peter Chesney, um, I'm trying to remember the name of his effects company. But anyways, Peter Chesney had the contract to do all the, the uh, physical effects on set. And they needed to have a tricycle melt into the ground. Mm -hmm. Well... I knew a bunch of people, and people knew me, and 
they needed someone to make molds for them. And okay. they freelanced a job to me to make the rubber tricycle molds. Again, coming from an engineering background, a little aside. So the way most people are taught how to make things is what I refer to as the cake mix scenario. Sure. Um, you know, do this, do this, do this, get this. Right. So if you have vanilla cake mix and you're making vanilla cake, you're, you're all set. You can do it. You'd be a pro at it. <laughs> Somebody asks you to make a chocolate cake, uh, it might be a little tough. Right. Somebody asks you to make a pie, uh, I don't know. The way I was taught how to make things is more like you learn a language. Mm -hmm. I was taught the letters, what the sounds they make, sure. the rules they have to follow, the rules they have to follow when they're next to other letters, right. uh, the rules they have to follow if it's a different language. Mm -hmm. right. they, there's actually quite a few rules to letters. Sure, right. And once you learn those rules, you don't say Sagawaro or Gila Bend. Right. You say Gila Bend <laughs> or Sawaro. Right? Mm -hmm. Well, I was taught how saws work, how, a cutting, how it actually cuts, mm -hmm. how um, plastic cross-links, what exothermic and endothermic mean. Right. I taught all of these things. And my dad was the kind of guy that if he didn't know, he'd say, hey, I don't know that. Um, let's ask your mom for a book and we'll learn it together. Oh, well, that's when the librarian right. comes to the yeah, rescue there. So I Google, my own Google at home. Sure. So when I looked at mold making, I understood pressure, the skinning of foam, how it all works. Because the, the skin on, on foam rubber doesn't come from pressure. Mm -hmm. People think, oh, well, it's the pressure when it goes up against the mold wall. Well, wait a minute. When I fill a balloon with air, does the air in the middle know it's in the middle? <laughs> does the air against the edge of the balloon know it's against the right. edge of the balloon? No. Right. Pressure's pressure, and it's a pressure all the way across. So why does it form a skin? Well, it forms a skin because the mold rubber absorbs heat out of the reaction. Mm -hmm. As it absorbs heat, like the predator blood, you add energy, it gets brighter, you take away energy, it gets dimmer. Right. So you add energy to urethane or something like that and it gets more vigorous you take it away it gets less vigorous so when it makes contact with the mold wall it's cooler right it produces less gas doesn't foam as much ah you get a skin so you want a better skin on your part you put your mold in the refrigerator <laughs> see like i ran foam for like maybe five years before i started then running silicone and i wish i had you to tell me all about this back then because i mean Nobody told me. A lot of times we were running those molds hot because they came right out of the oven. From a lot of time we wouldn't even let them bake the molds off, and because they, like you said, this is, needs to be done well, today. We're talking today, about today. urethane foam, but uh, yeah, but still, but, but yeah. same same idea, yeah. right? So when I made the molds, I made them knowing that they work a certain way. Physics, that mm -hmm. physics with the material work a certain way. Well, get them over to Chesney's shop. Now they don't know that I'm the guy that made them. They think I'm a driver, right? Right. I'm bringing them in. Well, I ran tests in all the molds. <laughs> And the guys come in, and I can hear them grumbling. And I kind of heard what they're talking about, but I wanted to make sure. And I said, well, you know, what's the problem? And they go, oh, well, you know, I don't know who made these molds, but there's no way these are going to hold pressure. And they, you know, they're never going to get a part out of them. And, whoa, 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 you know. and I brought in the tricycle, and I set it down. And they looked at it, and they went, what's that? I said, that came out of all these molds. Well, you did a lot of cleanup on that. I mean, there's no seams. I go, no, there's no cleanup on those. I just rough ran them just so you'd have them. Oh, and then it was 100 questions. Why'd you get the seams? I mean, the seams are perfect. Mm -hmm. Because you do them a certain way. So that, that's, sort of, that's sort of the story of the problems I've had over my years. And again, if you don't, not knowing what's real, not knowing what somebody knows or doesn't know, uh, it can be bad because I'll, I'll look at somebody like they're the stupidest person on the planet because they know how to do something because I don't know it's an unusual skill. Sure, right, right, really right. Don't. And on vice versa. 
you know, I'll, I'll try to explain something because I'll think they don't know. Right. And they'll look at me like, well, I'm not an idiot. Yeah. Well, no, I, I don't, I'm not really, honestly, I'm not trying to make you an idiot at all. Right. You know, I, I just love to learn. I love, that's in fact, the one thing I like the most about this business is I had my own leather business as a kid, so I knew leather work. Mm-hmm. But I got to learn medieval leather techniques for one film. I got to learn urethane casting. I've just recently learned glass blowing. So oh, wow. all these different techniques. I recently have been working on a Greenwich armor. Now, it's a personal thing, but I'm working on a Greenwich armor, which is a late uh, 16th century armor. And I'm redeveloping the techniques for using um, an etching paste that's made out of salt, copper sulfate, and vinegar, and charcoal. And it's used to etch steel. And it was what was used before acid technologies were developed. The other advantage of the paste wow. is that you can put it on a vertical surface and you don't need to submerge. Like, you know, the breastplate, you don't need to mask off the entire breastplate and put it in a giant vat of acid. Mm-hmm. You can just put this paste on where you want it to etch. Oh, wow. And it's salt, copper sulfate, vinegar. But like some of these techniques, they're very, very finicky, kind of like foam latex. Sure. You know, foam latex is super finicky, and if you don't have the temperature right or... Whip it enough like or it's too be much, exactly, or, exactly, or and it and it screws up, and if you don't know, and you don't take really good notes, you won't know. Right? Yeah, because you got to find that one variable. It's a science experiment every time. So my training of that helped me with this pace to be able to find out exactly what needed to be done. And my blog, Diligent Dwarves, um, has a whole thing on the making of that that paste. If someone out there, yeah, you want to, you want to. Say, tell her where to find it. I think it's Diligent Dwarves Blogspot. I don't know the URL. I don't, I don't post on it as much as I should, but I'm going to start posting more things on it. I'll read it, man. If That's... You, you do a Google search for Diligent Dwarves, okay. you'll absolutely find it. Okay. It's about the only thing out there that, with that silly name. Now, we're talking about leather. We're talking about steel. We're talking about these hard materials. I want to talk about a much softer material right now. You did some work on The Blob, the, the 1980s remake of The Blob. Yeah, I, I, you know, I already feel old enough, but then somebody said, you worked on the original? No, uh, <laughs> no, and no, the remake. Yeah, that we did a lot of stuff on. Craig, Craig Stearns, the first time I worked with Craig Stearns, who was the uh, art director on the show, production designer, and um, uh, we built this satellite. In fact, it was one of the first, I think, first on-screen things that I did here in L.A., actually. Oh, really? Uh, we were working on another couple of shows, I think Warlock, uh, with Julian Sands, and I just happened to stop by the set on the way home. They were filming at night for the blob, and the first AD said, "Hey, we want you to stay because we're going to shoot the satellite tonight." And you built it, and, you know, and on the of course the top of half of it looks like a supposed to look like a meteorite. And I said, "Well, I'm you know I wasn't contracted to be here." He goes, "Oh no, it's okay. We'll pay you." I went, "Oh, okay." What? Well, what that meant was that I would get there at 5 p.m., mm-hmm. work until 5 a.m. Right. And then go home, get a couple hours sleep, and then go into work and work the whole day, and then go. And this lasted all week. So by the end of the week, I was just like worn out. But one night, it was funny. Chuck Russell, the director, the blob is the satellites hanging there. Mm-hmm. Of course, it has the equator like a Death Star. You know, right. we deliberately made it kind of Death Starry. The looking. bottom looked very R two D two ish. There's a couple panels that specifically exactly. look we like R two D two. We kind of played around with that just for fun. You know, he's looking at going, wow, wow. Chris, that looks really great. Man, that, that, that looks, man, that's really great. And I go, yeah, Chuck, you know, look in the equator there. And he goes, yeah, yeah. I go, see that gold thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. I said, that's a paint can top. <laughs> and he goes, oh, no, man, don't tell me those things. I'm trying to believe in all this. Don't tell me that. And that was my first thing of, 
yeah, our job is to sell it to the director. Sure. You, know, you can't tell them, you know, you know, where you cheated like that. It was kind of funny. <laughs> Uh, but then we did the frozen blob for the blob, which mm-hmm. in, and they originally were thinking they were going to cast that out of polyester resin. Okay. And we got like, guys, this is going to weigh a million billion pounds. And I said, well, vacuform it. Well, again, goes back to that technical thing. I know how vacuforming works. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that was actually the very first job Patrick Totopoulos did. Our vacuform machine wasn't ready to go. And I brought that job over to Makeup Effects Lab where you worked and had them vacuform it. And Patrick was over there interviewing, and he was ah. on his way out the door to come see us. And John Pfeiffer over there, um, I was talking to the phone. He goes, well, you know, we're really busy, and I don't know if I've got some. Oh, wait, hold on. And I heard him go, Patrick. And they hired him right there on the spot just to run the vacuum form machine. <laughs> um, but what I did is I designed the pattern so it was in nine different pieces. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, with an undercut where it's going to lock on, you'll right. never get the pattern out. But... I could make undercuts as a pattern as a whole, but if it's in nine different pieces, the pieces can all come out individually. Sure. So I was able to then take How big was the surface area of the vacuform table? Four foot by four foot. Okay. And so what I was able to do is take those nine pieces, because they were all identical bases, and rearrange them. Mm-hmm. Because I knew that if you took and vacuformed something and then you stapled it all together, they would look like a giant quilt. You'd sure. see this repeat pattern. So with these nine individual pieces, I could change them around. The other thing I did is that I made the top and bottom borders of each panel the match to the left and right borders. So every panel I could rotate 180 oh, degrees see. and I could move oh, it. Oh, how cool. And then we painted them from the back side. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a lesson about not using sh- stuff you find in your cabinet. <laughs> it's one of those important lessons as a proper makeup, you know, prop guy. You don't just go to the cabinet and go, oh, maybe this will work. You want to make sure whatever it is you can get. Right. So I we were into radio-controlled cars at the time. I think a lot of shops were into yeah. that. And I had some spray paint that was designed to go in the inside of our RC car bodies, which are clear. And it's a pearlescent purple. And I used that, and I had mixed some pearlescent powders with alcohol and used an airbrush and put them in there. And then we used this pearlescent purple over the whole thing. And we did a couple different colors, and Chuck wanted to know what color to use, and the big meeting and he goes well chris what do you think and again that was like uh, uh well i think it should be this because if it's absorbing all these things it should look he goes yeah yeah that's great we're going to go with that so we vacuum all these pieces and we decide to go to the local car paint place order pearlized metallicized paint at three hundred dollars a gallon because it had so much pearl and so much metallic in it we sprayed it it looked terrible and we couldn't figure out what was going on. And the guys are going, oh, my God, it looks so awesome. I go, no, it doesn't look anything like the sample. Mm-hmm. And we brought it out and slayed them in the sun. And the sample, you know, and the other one was like, eh. <laughs> And it occurred to me, all the metallics and pearls in auto body paint are designed to be light. So they float to the surface where you can see them. Mm. And I'm looking at the back side. Right. The ones made for an RC car body, they're all heavy, formulated to be heavy, so they sink to the bottom, bottom of the paint. So when you flip them over, they're right there. Oh. It never occurred to me. And so we ended up buying, because it only was available in three ounce, three quarters of an ounce cans <laughs> and one ounce bottles. We ended up buying every case on the West Coast of one ounce bottles of pearlescent purple, emptying them into a big vat and painting the thing. Wow. We couldn't buy them direct from the factory. That is 
So, and that was all because <laughs> I opened my cabinet and went, oh, this looks like it'll work. We've all yeah. done that. You yeah. have to do it once to know not to do it anymore, right? Yeah. The, yeah. A, a good effects guy, though, or a, and any sort of guy Experience. that works out there, you, you like, all right, I made the mistake once. I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> As had an old Austrian friend of mine. He was a really nice guy. He, um, in fact, I think he uh, stormed the beach on D-Day. I mean, really? I, yeah, he's a pretty tough guy, but he's very funny, but he's very stern. And uh, as little kids, we'll always play practical jokes, and if they were a hit, they'll do it over and over sure. and over, right? Well, Maury wasn't a, a big fan of kids, but he liked my brothers and I, and I pulled some practical joke, and Maury leaned down, and he goes, that was a funny <laughs> once. <laughs> <laughs> so... That was sort of my, that's, you know, if you work for me, that's one of my jokes is that when something goes wrong, I'll go, that was a funny once. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a good mantra, right? It's a good yeah. to follow. Um, what other kind of stuff did you do specifically for the blob? Uh, we did a bunch of props. Let's see. We did snow globe. We did satellite. Oh, we did, <laughs> we did these work lights. So in the beginning of the film, when, they, when all the government guys are around, and uh, they sh the um, they show up the, the the what's his name on the motorcycle shows right up. Dylan they have all these lights set up yeah Kevin uh, Matt uh, Kevin Dylan yeah Kevin yeah, Dylan. Kevin Dylan the lesser Dylan uh, and uh, they have all these lights set up well I'm looking at the drawing that we have to build now again this is before LED technology mm -hmm. and I know these want to be bright because they want to have these things really practical and I'm thinking well I can't vacuum them because if I vacuum these lights are gonna be so hot they're just gonna melt, melt them. them. If I do them in fiberglass, I, I'm worried about that as well because they don't have a lot of room. They're not very deep. Mm -hmm. they, they were flat. And I'm looking at the shape going, oh, wait a minute. I know what this is. It's a deep frying pan. <laughs> it's like a 14-inch deep frying pan. Mm -hmm. So I went over to Kmart, and lo and behold, the, the display was full. <laughs> and I bought oh. all the frying pans they had, right? So I have two shopping carts filled with frying pans. And the Kmart guy comes over and he goes, uh... What are you doing? I said, I'm buying these. He goes, oh, I just filled that. <laughs> but then I must have gotten stopped like four times on the way out the store. Excuse me, do you know where such and such is? No, I'm sorry, I, don't I don't work, work here. here. And they're looking at the cart, and they're looking at me wondering what the... And then I'm in line, and the checkout girl, who's all bubbly, and she's all being you know, cheery and conversational to the, each person, and it gets to me. She goes, oh, hi, how are you today? Oh, are we having a barbecue? And I said... And just popped it in my head. I went, nah, I hate cleaning these things. So I use them a couple of times and throw them out. And her face went deadpan. And she just looked at me like, uh, didn't know what to say. I love when you go and you buy stuff for an effect or for a prop, for a movie, for movie stuff. But it's like regular stuff. And it's, you try to, like they ask you, well, what do you need? And you're like, I'm looking for online. I saw a picture of like a red bin to fry a turkey. And I'm looking for that. And they're like, do you mean this one? I was like, no, no, that one's black. I need, it needs to be these dimensions. She's like, well, what are you going to use it for? Like, that's not going to help you. If I explain to you what I'm going to do yeah, with it, yeah, that's exactly. not going to help you. Um, John Harrington, who did um, Earth to the Moon as the prop master. Now, I've been in the space program through my, you know, my interest, my, mm -hmm. my dad. Well, Gunter Vent, Gunter Vent, he was <laughs> the pad leader for a lot of these missions. Mm -hmm. So he had a torque wrench that he tightened the hatches on the spacecraft. Okay. You know, he really used this on the Gemini missions and the Apollo missions. Incredible. And he's on set, and he hands this thing to John. And he goes, I, I brought you a prop that you should use on your movie. And John is also a space geek, and he's looking at it thinking, I, I'm holding the torque wrench that actually tightened the capsule. This is the last thing that touched the spacecraft 
you know, by a human. Right. Oh, my God, you know, because I can't use this. And then he noticed it's just a craftsman torque wrench. <laughs> One of his assistants, we're shooting in Florida. One of his assistants went to a thrift store and found the exact model vintage craftsman torque wrench in the thrift store for like five bucks. The only difference is the release button was green instead of red. <laughs> and I, after I said to John, I said, John, did you give Gunter back his wrench? He goes, yeah, I had to. <laughs> that, I mean, this is amazing. And I tell you, I really genuinely could talk to you all day. We're going to, if you're interested, oh, we'd love fun. to have you back onto the show at some point. Be great fun. This has been amazing. We're trying to support Legion M. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a great idea. Uh, you know, when they did this at Le Mans years ago, a uh, race team needed to sponsor their car. So for 20 bucks or 100 bucks, you could get your signature on the race car. And there's this race car that showed up with this unusual paint job, and it was thousands of signatures. So the idea of having fans be able to invest in a film is great. And that's, um, for those of us who don't know, we give us a quick, like, two or three sentence of what Legion M is. Yeah, Legion M is because of uh, rules changes in finances, uh, as I understand it. They have been able to finance movies using public funds. You know, people can basically invest a, a small amount of money and be involved in funding a movie. And they've done, if you see over here on the wall, they've done the new Nick Cage movie, Mandy. Uh, my, I love Colossal. I thought that yeah, was a Colossal cool idea. Yeah, Colossal is amazing. It, and Girl with that. No Name. So, you know, they've, they've got a track record down, and it's starting off slow. But in global... Um, you know, we have a huge rental stock, so we want to help support those. Because those are, for a film, those are hard costs that are tough sure. to get around. You know, you do a spacesuit, uh, $100,000 to $150,000, you know. And, you know, I think the Spider-Man costumes were $60,000 a piece, and right. they built 15 of right. them. So that was not a cheap thing to do. For sure. Um, Is there anything else, either you personally or for your companies that you want to plug, that you want to throw in now and say... Check it out. We're good. Um, good. I think, uh, keep an eye out for Ad Astra, which is coming out next year. A Brad Pitt movie. That looks really exciting. We did that. We also work on an Apple show right now about uh, what if the space race never ended. It's a pretty cool concept. Oh, that's a good concept. Yeah. I like it. It yeah. takes place in contemporary times? Yep. Oh, no. It takes place uh, in the... It, it starts with Apollo 11. Okay. Yeah, basically Apollo 11 gets to the moon and there's already a Russian lander there. Oh, I'd watch that. Yeah. That's not, all right. Yeah, it sounds I'm, really I'm hooked. Cool. I'm intrigued. You got yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. All right. And and uh, John, a friend of mine, is working on the new Amazing uh, Stories reboot. Oh, and yeah. And uh, a little another little Easter egg for you. I was the emotion capture knight in the original Amazing Stories opening title sequence. Really? Yeah. And, That's emblazoned in my mind. I can see that exactly. And they oh, laid wow. that track down, um, and it took a week to render that. <laughs> a week. To render wow. that simple, that shows you how long ago it was. Right, for sure, yeah. right? I wasn't even going to ask you what year yeah. it was. <laughs> That's incredible. Well, Mr. Gilman, thank you very much for yeah. taking the time. Sorry, I really man. appreciate it, and we would love to have you back on the show. Thank you. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff.